Good morning. Acts chapter 8. While you're turning there, I want to make an object lesson after the, uh, about these three wonderful ladies right here in the front row. What was the name of the first hymn we sang? Thank you, Don. How many remember? Be honest. How great thou art. Now, how in the world can you sing a song like that with a face like this? I won't name names, but uh, I was particularly struck by these three wonderful young ladies. Uh, as I looked around the room, I saw a number of faces like this. Singing, I think they were singing, How Great Thou Art. I'm not sure because I couldn't hear them. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, you have an excuse. If you're not a Christian, there's no reason why you should be singing that. You don't understand, really. And you're not going to know until you come to Jesus Christ. But I think there were some here who professed to be saved who were mumbling. Watch these three young ladies. It was delightful to see them singing that song. I mean, they, their mouths were wide open. There was expression on their faces. They had the uh, choruses memorized, by the way in the hymns they didn't even have to look at their hymnals for the choruses okay now i don't want to put them on the spot but if you need some inspiration for our closing hymn just give a glance over here okay <laughs> acts chapter eight we'll just read it the section at a time as we go through it now saul was consenting to his death whose death stephen at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Sometimes... Uh, there's a danger when we go through the Bible and we study it, um, particularly in a narrative uh, book, like uh, a, a history book like the Gospels or Acts. Uh, you, you tend to start to get bleary-eyed trying to understand what all of these different events have to do with each other. Don't you? I do. And that's why Don had the overview before we got into the book, because it's good also to stand back and try to see the book as a whole, because there is a, a unity in the Word of God at every level. It just sometimes it takes a little more work to find it. Now, it shouldn't be hard for you, I'm going to give you a little quick quiz here, to come up with at least two verses that have been referred to quite repeatedly to describe what's been going on in the first seven chapters that we've seen. See if anybody can think of a verse somewhere in the Bible that might kind of summarize what we've been seeing so far. One, I know you should have. Okay, I see a big grinning, nodding head back there. It's my son, so I'm going to have him defer. Anybody? Don't, don't be bashful. Can you think of a verse that we might find somewhere that kind of summarizes what we've been seeing happening here? No? Hello? <laughs> it's in Matthew 16. Come on, go ahead, Don. Thank you. Yes. Jesus said, 
I will build my church. Okay, can Jesus lie? No. That means he must have built his church, huh? Well, where would we find that recorded where he built his church, do you think? The book of Acts. Yes, that's it. That's why we said this book is better titled The the Acts of Jesus Christ. So we have been seeing the working out of that prophecy, right? And it's wonderful. The other verse, you might have a little more trouble uh, getting this, and I'm sure Don knows what I'm talking about. It's Acts 1.8, it's a memory verse. You shall be witnesses unto me in... Uh, 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 uh. He didn't start off with Samaria. (laughs) Jerusalem was first. Then what? Judea, then Samaria, and... Yes, uttermost parts of the earth, or the ends of the earth, yes. So Jesus described how it would happen that he would build his church, and he was going to use the disciples to do it. So there's two things we're told there. So he starts in, not surprisingly, Jerusalem, the religious capital of the, of the nation of Israel, right? And that's pretty much what we've been seeing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Then, but he says, uh, after you're going to expand, Judea is the province in which Jerusalem lies. But then he expanded beyond that to the northern province, which is Samaria. But he didn't stop there. He then drew a huge circle, and he said, to the ends of the earth. And you see that work out in the book of Acts. We've only seen Jerusalem so far, but we're going to see now that expanding circle, just like Jesus said. Isn't that neat? Jesus said ahead of time, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's exactly what happened. And then he said, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's exactly the way it happened. You're in safe hands, let me tell you, if you're in the hands of Jesus. He does what he says he's going to do. And when he says he gives you eternal life, it's eternal life. So keep that in mind now as we, as we continue going through that. That's what we're seeing. But there's a third uh, section, a few verses that I want to help us to... Uh, use as our guideline as we go through today and we're going to review at the end what we've seen so far because it's wonderful there is a third principle that's going to apply to how jesus does these things because when god does things there's a certain way he does them let me explain first corinthians 1 is the passage i'm thinking i'll just read it to you listen to this first corinthians 1 27 through 29 but god has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise and god has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world which are despised god has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are isn't that wonderful now the opening hymn was how great thou art that is showing how great god is because when people do things that are big and wonderful and great we have to use things that are big and wonderful and great don't we you know uh great schemes and great power and lots of money and and rich people and smart people or handsome people and beautiful people we say if you're going to have a project that's going to be a success you got to use the best right well then when it is a success we shouldn't be too surprised should we (laughs) it had all the odds in favor of it well god doesn't like to work that way he likes to show how great he is by using the most unlikely things 
And it, this isn't just true in the book of Acts. It's all over the Bible. God hasn't changed. He's always been this way. Go back to the nation of Israel. Here's this tiny little nation. They're not great. God told them that. He didn't choose them because they were great. They were the least of the peoples, he said. I chose you because I chose you, basically. And here they're in probably at that time the greatest, most powerful nation in the world, and they end up plundering that place and walking out with gold and silver and jewels and everything else. And they didn't lift a finger. <laughs> God did it all, you see. You see, he gets all the glory. That's the point. That's what it says here in this passage. And we could go on um, Jericho. You know, they, it wasn't because they had tanks and artillery and all the latest weaponry. What did they do to make the walls fall down? They went around, marched around it. Can you imagine what the uh, inhabitants of Jericho thought as they saw these people just marching around the city, you know? And then when they got done, they blow the trumpets, you know, until the walls start falling down. <laughs> God is great, you see. And he wa- that's what he wants to be seen when it's all said and done. Not us, not, not you and me, him. Jesus Christ deserves all the glory, amen? Man, I didn't do a thing. I did the sinning, he did the saving. Well, we could go on through history. Uh, I'll just mention um, a good example is Gideon. You know, it's it said about the uh, opponent, opposing uh, army that they went against. It says they were innumerable, like the sands of the sea. So we, we, I looked back there. I wanted to find a number to use, but it's so big. It said you couldn't count them. So it had to have been tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands. And, of course, God whittled down his army to how many? Anybody remember? 300. <laughs> 300 that's suicide you don't do that unless god is behind it so that when the victory was won people would look on and say that had to be of the lord certainly wasn't these guys that did it you see and we've said it before of course the greatest by far uh in eternity we will never exhaust the theme of the greatness of god in using the death of his son to bring you and me to glory that's incredible use use the weakest the lowest here he is the son of god dying as a criminal the devil's dancing a jig the enemies think they have won and god has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat literally and he can bring you and me now brothers and sisters into heaven perfected forever higher than the angels because of that is god great wow So that's what we've been seeing, and we're going to focus on that again as we go through the passage here today. Okay, so uh, chapter 8 really is is one of the pivotal verses, uh, pivotal chapters in the book of Acts because things really look bleak here. And and when you read the Bible, by the way, as, as best as you can, when I do this, try to think I'm reading it for the first time, you know? Don't, don't read it. Oh, yeah, I've read this one a hundred times. I know what's going to happen. You know, oh, I recognize that verse. Don't do that. I tell you, it can be fresh every time you read the word of God. That's the way God wants it to be. And you'll be seeing new things and, and new discoveries every time you do that. Up here now, here I am. And so let's, let's pretend for a moment we don't know what's going to happen. And if we were to read what just happened, what happened? last time Stephen got stoned to death 
Yeah. Here was this great man of God uh, doing wonders, miracles, preaching the word, having a great effect for the, the church of God, and he's dead now. That, think about that. Up until now, it's been arrests, even beatings, warnings, imprisonment. Okay, you know, you and I could probably handle that, huh? You know, and, and do like the disciples. Go, go rejoicing on your way, uh, praising God because you were uh, worthy enough to suffer uh, for the Lord Jesus' sake. But this is different now. And stony, that's not a nice way to die. So if you look at the circumstances, let me say this. What 1 Corinthians was saying about the way God works is you could, you could say it this way. He uses uh, the most unlikely people, the most unpromising circumstances, and the most unconventional means to achieve his ends. And here we're going to see the most unpromising circumstances because Stephen had just been murdered. Think, of, think about this now. Your disciple at that time, he's a frontline soldier. You know, in a battle, uh, they keep the, the main guys, the generals, back behind the lines. Because if they get killed, the men just lose heart. And so they keep them safe. And if you've got a guy who's a real champion out there, and he, he, he buys it, as they say, he's dead, I, whole armies will just collapse. That's happened in history. When David slew Goliath, you know what it says? It says the Philistines lost heart and fled over the death of one guy. Scared the daylights out of them, and they were defeated. And that could happen here. Certainly that's the, the intention of the devil, you know? Let's stop this thing before it gets started. It's isolated in Jerusalem, like they uh, say when there's a forest fire or even an army. You go for containment first, and then you blot it out. And that's what he's trying to do here. Think about it. Stephen, he, he didn't just die, he was murdered. He was murdered in public. It was a violent death. <laughs> Probably the, the scariest thing about it is there's no retribution to the people that killed him. We're talking religious leaders here. You know? Nobody went out and said, okay, let's investigate this and arrest the perpetrators. No. And so now it's, it's fair game if you're a Christian you're, you're wide open, okay? It's open season now in Christians. So not surprisingly, it goes on to say that um, there was a great lamentation raised and they took him away uh, to be buried. And it says a great persecution arose against the church at this time. Wow. So here's the devil trying his best to squelch God's work before it gets off the ground. Verse 3 is interesting, by the way. Um, we, you notice how God just kind of introduces Saul in little bits and pieces. Back in verse 58, as they're stoning Stephen, you have this little phrase, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Nothing more. We don't know who this guy is. What is he doing there? Other than, he doesn't sound like a nice guy. They took off their clothes, not only because of sweaty labor, they didn't want to get blood on them. That's why they do that. Yeah. And so Saul, here's this guy standing over there, and it's like, oh, you put your coats over here. I'll keep an eye on him, you know, while you guys do your business. This doesn't sound like a good guy, does it? But that's all we know. But then it, it, he tells us a little later here in verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. Yeah. Not a nice guy. But in verse 3, 
It's very interesting. It says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. You got the picture there? Can you imagine? The word there, by the way, or the phrase, it says in mine, made havoc. I think it even says that in the old King James, but with a K, made havoc. This is the only place in the New Testament where that word occurs. It's one word in the Greek. And it's a very strong word to describe a destructive rampage. It's like God fished for the worst word he could find in the Greek uh, lexicon and pulled it out to, to describe what Paul was doing. It's used in the Septuagint, that's the translation of the Old Testament into Greek, to describe in uh, Psalm 80 a wild boar when it tears up a vineyard. I don't know if you've ever seen movies or maybe even seen live a boar with their big tusks. And uh, they're not little pigs. I mean, they get like this. And they get those big long tusks going. They'll, they'll root it. Uh, can you imagine? You ever try to vi- dig up like a little tree or a, a vine or something? <laughs> that's not easy. These boars will go through. And that's what he's talking about. With those tusks, they will just literally dig up all the bushes and plants. Big ones in a field. They are so strong. That's the word he uses there in uh, Psalm. It's the same description of Paul wreaking havoc on the church. He was out for blood. It says, entering every house. Can you imagine? You're a Christian and, you know, knock on the door. Kind of like the Gestapo. And he shows you the warrant or whatever. And the next thing you know is you and your whole family are being hauled off to prison. Why? Because you love Jesus Christ. And then put in prison, it says. Oh, it says dragging them off, too. Manhandled, you know. That's the Boy, he, he's not being delicate about it. And then put in prison. prison. Prison in these days, you wouldn't want to go to prison here. They didn't have Nautilus and DVDs and Game Boys. It's not prison like we think about it. It's a bad place. People died in prison just by being in prison. And then were often executed. So there's the picture. The Lord Jesus is building his church, and it sure looks like this is the end. It looks like the devil's one. I bet the devil's dancing a jig again, you know? Believers are going everywhere, scattered like sheep. Well, read on. Verse 4, Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. So here's the Lord Jesus building his church and using, (laughs) I love it, the most unpromising circumstances. He used the persecution to spread the gospel. Isn't that great? (laughs) What a wonderful Savior. It says, therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, and here are the three key words, preaching the word. I love it. Now, you may be sitting here saying, oh man, you know, why are they preaching the word? You know, why don't they be quiet? Look what's happening. There's a persecution. Stephen just got killed. Who knows how many others are dying? It's an interesting thing. 
If you have a real Christian on your hands, you know what? They just can't be quiet about Jesus. It's interesting. That's a test of life. You can't shut a real Christian up about Jesus. You know, they were, in those days, possibly part of this persecution, I don't know what, what it was part of, but there's a well-known story that's recounted in the Roman annals of this time. Uh, they did terrible things to Christians, you know, some of them. One, one thing they would do, they would wait until wintertime, and then would take them out in the middle of a frozen lake, tie them up and leave them there, and they would die of exposure. And a Roman historian re- account, uh, recounts uh, the case uh, where they took out a band of Christians and they, were, they left and they died on the ice. But as uh, the soldiers saw the demeanor of the believers as they were facing death, they were so impressed by these people and that they would, they would not refuse to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what they were supposed to do. But that was the magic, magic words. You know, deny Jesus and everything will be okay. Uh, two, two of the soldiers joined them and died with them. Probably, obviously, as believers, they probably got converted on the spot. Because the Christians, you know, they just couldn't be quiet about Jesus. It's wonderful. There's a wonderful uh, phrase. You can't put it better than in the word of God. Jeremiah, I tell you, that guy was dropped in wells and threatened and, and I can't know what else. For speaking the word of God. And I love it. He's a man like you and me. And he got to a point where he writes in the book of Jeremiah. He says this. Then I said, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name. I can understand that. He'd had a pretty rough time. He said, okay, I'm just, I'm not going to talk about God anymore. I've had it. These people don't want to listen. They're hurting me. They're not changing. They're not repenting. But he goes on to say, but his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. You got that? His word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary of remaining silent and I could remain silent no longer. Isn't that great? The word of God was just so strong in him, he couldn't remain silent. And he kept right on preaching all the way through the captivity, got drugged down into Egypt. Everything he said was unpopular. They got down there. He says, first, he told them, don't go down there. God doesn't want you to do it. And they hated him for it and persecuted him for it. He got down there. He says, look, you guys stay here. It's going to be bad news. He would have loved to have said, "Okay, pray. Everything's going to be comfy. You know, you're going to prosper. Everything's going to be wonderful. But it was different. God had bad news for them right to the end. He was a faithful man preaching the word of God. It's a sign of a real, true believer. You can't be quiet about Jesus if you've really been changed by him. Well, the other thing about this passage that I like is that there would be a tendency to say, oh man, Stephen, he was doing so well. He was in his prime. He was just getting started for the Lord and he's gone. Well, we're going to find a replacement. That's not a problem with God. Okay? He, he delights in choosing nobodies and making them into somebodies for him. Not somebodies in the world, but somebodies for Jesus. So along comes this guy named Philip. And as I read this, I thought, um, I don't know uh, 
what generation I'd say I, I am of, I'm probably the generation after Gene Gibson and Bill McDonald. Lord's taken Gene, and, and we don't know how long, much longer the Lord's going to bless us with Bill's presence. So maybe I'm the next generation, and Howard and Don and others. But I'm thinking beyond, if Jesus tarries, there's another generation behind us. Some of them are in this room, some of you young men. You know? Think about it. When we're gone, and if Jesus tarries, what are you going to be doing? What are you thinking about? What are your goals? What are your ambitions? That old American dream, right? You know? How about being willing to be despised by the world and being esteemed by Jesus Christ? Think about it. Well, that was Philip. Even after what happened to Stephen, he was willing to uh, step into the gap. Verse 9. Oh, by the way, I should comment on this. I, I'd be very negligent if I didn't say it. Uh, did you notice two key words here in uh, verse 1? I'll give you a hint. They're geographical locations. Judea and Samaria. Ding! Acts 1.8. You will be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Here's phases 2 and 3 right here. Isn't that great? Devil drives the believers out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria and fulfills prophecy. I love it. Preaching the gospel as they go. Okay, verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet... He had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Okay, we're going to see more of Simon later, so we're going to defer our discussion of him for a moment. Uh, the thing I want to focus on here is, here is what Jesus said would happen. The gospel is now going into Samaria. That's not a small thing. The Samaritans were despised by the Jews. That's why Jesus told the story about the what? Good Samaritan. Yeah. <laughs> they didn't think there was such an animal, you know. What's the modern word for a contradiction in terms? An oxymoron to the, to the Jews. That was an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. A good Samaritan, you know. Uh, Jesus went to Samaria. He didn't have any trouble, did he? In fact, it was wonderful. You remember when we studied the book of John, remember how open the people were. And so the Lord has not just Jerusalem on his heart, but Judea and Samaria as well. And so he uh, brings the gospel to them through Philip. And there's a wonderful harvest of souls. A barrier has been crossed here. That's the point. You see, the Lord Jesus is overcoming hurdles as he's expanding the witness here. Now, you may wonder um, why this. It says uh, he pray, they sent uh, Peter and John down. Because as yet the Holy Spirit had not fallen upon them. 
verse 16. What's going on here? Well, first of all, the Holy Spirit is God. God sovereignly chooses whom he will indwell. Now, these had believed, and yet they weren't indwelt. Why? Obviously, God did that deliberately. It wasn't a mistake. Well, it doesn't take a lot of uh, thinking to realize that there could have been a real possibility of there becoming a Samaritan church and a Jewish church. And already you'd have a split here. And so to force, literally, the Jews from Jerusalem to be uh, identified, if you will, with the believers in Samaria, God waited to give them the Holy Spirit until the apostles came right from Jerusalem, laid hands on them, and then received the Holy Spirit. And you've got that identification. Now, isn't that wonderful? I think it is. The Lord Jesus is keeping his church together here. Okay? Samaritans and Jews are not separate. By the way, while we're on that subject, uh, laying on of hands. I think when I first was a Christian, I read that I, I kind of got the picture from... Uh, you know, old medieval stories, you know, that somehow, you know, there's some kind of power or something, energy being transmitted. That's not the idea in the Bible. The idea is identification. You have laying out of hands way back in the Old Testament. And it wasn't a picture of transmission of energy. What was it? The Jews would bring their sacrificial animal into the tabernacle, to the gate, and they would lay their hands on it. What was it a picture of? identification that's right it was a picture that their sins now were on this animal that that animal was being so identified with them it was as if the animal now had their sins that was the picture god told them that it's identification not okay and we've used it in this church uh before you've seen it uh most typically whenever we've commended someone full-time to the work of the lord we lay hands on them and pray for them and it's not we are somehow energizing them it's the idea that when we commend someone to the work of the lord we're identifying with them and by publicly laying hands on them we are saying we identify with this person in his or her ministry we support them what they say we support it, how they preach that's the way we would preach listen to them okay and also we're identifying by saying we will support you through prayer and and even financial means identification so when you see laying on of hands, think identification. So the Jewish believers from Jerusalem are identifying now with, wow, laying. Can you imagine? It's almost like touching a leper. Laying hands on the Samaritans. And now there's uh, unity there. Okay, uh, now we'll pick up with this character named Simon here in verse 18. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered, he said, then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem 
preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Simon. You know, there's actually a word in your Bible that comes from this guy. That's pretty cool, huh? Except for the word isn't such a good word. The word is simony. S-I-M-O-N-Y. Go look it up when you get home. It's in your dictionary, little s, simony. And it means purchasing spiritual advantages with money. Isn't that interesting? What a thing to become famous for, huh? It's not a good thing. And uh, it was used a lot before the Reformation in the criticism of the Catholic Church. You know what indulgences are? You ever heard indulgences before? They still exist, by the way. But uh, who was it, Pope Leo, or I can't remember who it was, who was expanding the uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in Rome and, and building the, um, the Vatican there. He needed money. And so it was great. It was kind of like stock in a company nowadays. You know, you just generate stock and you sell it. What, he, what a pope had the power to do, he would make a declaration that if you contribute 10 ducats to the building of uh, the Vatican, you get one year off in purgatory. Pretty good deal, huh? 100 ducats, uh, 10 years. I'm serious. It's terrible. They were indulgences. And they were constantly, the posts were constantly, they needed money for all their uh, architecture and their statues and paintings. You know, they're worth trillions of dollars, the Catholic Church. I mean, just the, uh, the art alone that's in Rome, the city of Rome, you know? Michelangelo's are a dime a dozen to them. They got a whole uh, Michelangelo on the ceiling. <laughs> so whenever they needed money, they'd sell forgiveness for money. You think God doesn't hate that? It's done today. And it's uh, even the, uh, quote, Protestants, televangelists, you know. I remember, I won't name him, but there was a Pentecostal preacher who uh, wanted to expand, uh, I believe it was his, uh, quote, Christian college campus. And they didn't have the money. And so he said he'd gotten a vision from God that he was supposed to go up in this tower and stay there and pray. I see some heads nodding. You remember this. Until that money came in. Unfortunately, he got pretty hungry after a week. And he got a new revelation from God <laughs> that he should come down and have dinner. And he never got the money. But that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about here. Listen, people, why do people uh, buy into that stuff? Because they believe it. They believe that somehow money can have an influence over your eternal soul. Listen, it does not. There is only one thing that can save you, and that's the blood of Jesus Christ. Not perishable things like gold and silver, God says. Forget that. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. That and that alone. Christian cult leaders, I could go down the list, spend the rest of the time here talking about cults where the leader is a billionaire. I'm thinking of several right now. They, live, they have yachts, you know, a collection of Ferraris. And the incredible thing is they're, 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 their followers just live in poverty and give every penny that comes their way to the, quote, church, as they call it. There it is, simony. It's alive and well on planet Earth as we speak. 
it gets down to people think, you know, I, I can't get uh, forgiveness or salvation for nothing. It's got to cost me something. So the first thing they think of is their, their wallet. And that's why people fall into stuff like this. If I'm forking out 100,000 bucks, yeah, it must be saying something to God. You know, it must be uh, moving some hands up there somewhere. Let me ask you a question. Was Simon a Christian? <laughs> I won't put you on the spot. Well, let's listen to some of the phrases here that Peter used. Verse 20, he says to Simon, your money perish with you. Uh, Verse 21, you have neither part nor portion in this matter. Verse 23, I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity do those phrases describe a believer they cannot no that's right any one of them this guy was not a christian now i know what you're saying you're turning back here uh where was the verse come on somebody's already got it marked 13 verse 13 what does it say then simon himself also did what wow praise the lord he must be a believer after all he's just a backslider he's not a christian god uses the word faith and believing in both contexts you know he he acknowledges in james people have faith you ever witness to somebody and they say well i believe in god you ever heard that they believe don't they sure they use the word they believe in god you know, I love telling people when they say that, you, that puts you on a par with the devil. Because that's what James goes on to say. You say you believe you do well. Even the devils, and listen to this, they believe, but they do something else. What? They tremble. That's right. They tremble. They fear God. They know God. They know what he's like. People who throw that t- phrase around, oh, I believe in God, they don't tremble. Forget it. You know, they're not afraid of God. He's some old guy with white hair sitting on a cloud on a on a throne. Uh uh-uh. uh. You'll find out. It'll be too late. Well, you see, that's kind of believing that we have here. He believe he believes something, but it wasn't biblical faith in placing his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation. He uh, probably what he he probably believed that uh there was something good here and he wanted to get a piece of the action because that's what he does he's a forerunner of those willing to pay something for religion and in fact if you noticed what did peter tell him to do he told him to pray didn't he and what did simon respond he said you pray for me what does that sound like sound like some uh religions you know about you know where the priest does it all yeah isn't that interesting see this is simony in all its glory trafficking in spiritual things monetarily or paying some guy to do it for you have somebody else do it you know it really the the core of false religions is it has its beginning right here it's a for he's a forerunner of those who have a form of godliness willing to give god money 
but not their hearts. What's worse? Well, I can think of something worse. False professors who are one, unwilling neither to give God their money or their hearts. He's a picture of what I call celebrity Christians. Having, through my life, uh, followed uh, college sports off and on for some time. It's amazing, even in professional sports, how many sports figures are saved, isn't it? Man, I mean, there are more Christians on all the NFL teams than the United States put together. It's amazing how much Christian men want sports figures to be Christian. You know, in college ball, particularly in the South, they have a, a prayer before the game and after the game. Do you know that? They have, they have a, a team chaplain typically down in the South, like in Texas or Louisiana. They're praying all the time. They're all Christians. And it's so wonderful when they get up and say, I, you know, it's not me, it's, it's God, you know, or it's Jesus. And, and the guy sitting there watching the replay saying, praise God, he's a, he's a Christian. Celebrity Christians. Some... Some people just, they want so bad for celebrities to be Christians I think, because they think it adds credibility to the message, you know? If somebody famous is going to be a Christian, well, then it must be good, right? As long as we're all just a bunch of nobodies, that's not, that's not very good. It doesn't recommend it, you know? Need to have somebody give their, uh, what's their word? Endorsement, thank you. Today, I'll tell you, if Simon came out like this, you know, you know, how much, how many thousand you want? Hey, come on, brother, you know, Simon, the celebrity. I remember in the late 1970s, while dear Steve Kennedy was still alive, we, my, my wife and I went with him and his wife, Wanda, and I believe there's another couple with us, to the Cow Palace in San Francisco to see... Two celebs who had gotten saved. One was the former founder of the Black Panthers. Big, big name. Well known. If you'd said his name, you'd know who he was. The other was a former big character in the Watergate scandal. Another very famous man. And uh, they were together in the same place. And, and Steve and I wanted, let's go check these guys out. We've heard all this stuff. Let's see what's going on. And they got up there, and I'll tell you, the Christians just couldn't, well, the people in the audience, excuse me, couldn't shout loud enough when these guys got up there and gave their testimony and so on. And it was like, you know, I think people were thinking, hey, Christianity's real after all. Look at this. If these guys can embrace it, it must be right. Unfortunately, the founder of the Black Panthers then went on to try out Mormonism, he was a Mooney for a while, Unification Church, Reverend Sun Young Moon, the cult. He ended up being, I'm not sure what you'd call him, but it's kind of a God is in everything, all religions lead to God and so on. That's how he died. You know, unification maybe, or universalism. Anyway, can you imagine the number of people who were stumbled by that man? And maybe people who would have come to Christ? And then saw his testimony, and instead of going that way, went that way, you know. What about the other one? Well, it's funny. When I read the book he, he published, which became a bestseller, uh, as I was a believer, as I read it, something was very troubling to me. He kept talking about his wife, who was a Catholic. And you could see in the book, he could not bring himself to, to say that she was not a Christian. 
Although she clearly based her salvation on what Catholics do, works. And guess what? That's become the fly in the ointment. And now he is the leader. He is, a, he is the leader in Christian circles of joining the, quote, Protestant church with the Catholic church because, as he says, over and over again, we believe the same thing. Let me tell you plainly, the Catholic church teaches, no, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is not enough. You have got to work for your salvation. Imagine following that guy. You see, the point is, uh, the credibility of the message is not based on how famous the person is who believes it. The credibility of the message is based on who says it originally, and it's God in this case, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't hit your wagon to a falling star. And I believe a lot of people did with these guys. Well, Simon is the perfect candidate here for a celebrity Christian, let me tell you. He's already famous, isn't he? It says, people in Samaria, small and great, listen to this guy. He'd been doing it for a long time. Can you imagine parading him out? Here he is, Brother Simon, saved from sorcery. You know, what a testimony. Parade him out there and have him give his testimony. Well, the Lord Jesus is building his church. And this is not a stone that goes in that church. And so as he so often did in the early days, he gave, it's very interesting, there's two words here that are so important. He gave Peter the discernment to see through this. And he saw Simon is not just a poor, young, untaught believer. He is a danger to the church and to himself. And the words that I really, I love here, Simon says to him, uh, verse 23, chapter 8, I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound, I love that, by, and bound by iniquity. That's the words of discernment. Peter's saying, God's giving me a deeper insight here into what's going on in your heart. And I see what's really going on. You're in serious trouble. And you have neither part nor parcel with us. And by identifying that, he made a distance between uh, the church and this fellow. So when he went out now, the public knew this guy is not part of them. You understand? That's the idea. So I know it says in verse 13 he believed. I don't know what he believed, but he didn't believe the gospel. We've never used it here, and so I thought as I uh, prepared, I'm going to go ahead and use this uh, illustration. It's a time-worn illustration. Some of you might have heard it before, but it's so wonderful I couldn't resist it. Believing. Real believing. There was a uh, <clears throat> tightrope walker back in the late 1800s named uh, Charles Blondin. That's the way you pronounce it in French. We probably said Blondin. He was French. They called him Blondin the Great. And believe it or not, this guy really would stretch a rope across Niagara Falls, a thousand foot long. Can you imagine? And he would walk from one end to the other. He'd go out there and he'd uh, lay down. He'd eat a meal out in the middle of it. This guy was unbelievable. And he'd always, to, to keep people coming, he'd have to keep adding things to his axe. And so uh, one time he went out and, he, and he, he did several of his things out on going across a tightrope, you know, drinking a cup of wine or something and and he got back, and the people were just applauding wildly. And he said, how many of you believe, and he brought out a wheelbarrow. And he said, how many of you believe that I could, you sit in this wheelbarrow, and I could take you across that tightrope safely? It really happened. 
And uh, lots of people, you know, yeah, yeah, obviously, you're so great, you could do that. So we asked for volunteers. <laughs> That's right. He didn't get one until his manager was a plant. His manager knew he could do it. I guess they probably rehearsed it. And so his manager says, I'll they didn't know who he was, I'll, I'll come forward. And he did it, and he wheeled them all the way across in the wheelbarrow. But uh, think of all those other people that said, yeah, I believe it. But when it came right down to getting in that wheelbarrow, it's a different story. That's what we're talking about here, you see. The difference between a person who says they believe and aren't saved and a person who says they believe and are is the real believer didn't just say, I believe Jesus can save me from my sin. They got up and they got in that wheelbarrow. They put their whole trust in Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. They abandoned all other hope. And they said, Lord Jesus, here I am, take me. And if you let me go, I'm sunk because I've abandoned all other hope but you. That's it. That's what it takes to be saved. That's what it says when uh, you believe on Jesus Christ. All your trust, all your confidence, your faith in him and nothing else. Have you done that? Think about it. Have you gotten in that wheelbarrow? Okay, well, real quick, let's uh, finish up the chapter here. Um, we'll pick up on what Philip did. In verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority, under Candace the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury, and had come to Jerusalem to worship. He was returning, and sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. His justice was taken away and who will declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch answered Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does this prophet say this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at the scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Well-known passage uh, imagine here's Philip. He's probably up in Jerusalem. It's about 50 miles away from Gaza. Long way. As it says here, it's a desert area. It's desolate. And God says, okay, I want you to go down to, to Gaza. What would you do? Well, Philip obeyed. And uh, he found the Ethiopian eunuch there and led him to Christ. I love this passage because it demonstrates several things. One of them is, you know, unbelievers often say, what about the... Uh, the poor unbeliever out in the middle of uh, Africa or South America or Saudi Arabia 
you know, or it used to be in Russia or something, that once the, the, the poor person who's unsaved and wants to know the Lord, how can he ever get to them? Well, this is a good answer for that. If someone is genuinely seeking the Lord, he will make sure they find him. Okay? It's not going to be somebody out there, oh, I want to know God, what do I do? You know, and they die in their sins because God didn't notice them. And here's a good example of that. Here's this dear man reading in Isaiah. He wants to know the Lord. Boy, you're looking in the right place, huh? Isaiah 53, isn't that pretty good? And so God miraculously intervenes and brings Philip down there and then uh, leads him to the Lord. But there's something else here too. We, we said this is Christ building his church. Not everybody is a missionary. And yet there are foreign lands that need to hear the gospel. One of the ways to reach a foreign land without going there is by, through this means. Isn't it wonderful? Here's this Ethiopian guy. That's down in the middle of Africa. He's up in Jerusalem. He's heard about the, the God of the Jews, obviously. And he's going home, heading south. And God brings Philip alongside. So instead of Philip going to Ethiopia to take the gospel there, he lets the Ethiopian eunuch go up to Jerusalem, hear the gospel in Israel, get saved, and now he can go back as a missionary to his own people. Isn't that great? And I just brought it. I'm not going to uh, read it or anything, but some of you know about this book, Operation World. It's a good handbook for praying for the nations of the world. It gives a good summary of each nation. And used to be, of course, the communist countries were the greatest strongholds against the gospel. Probably now it's the Muslim countries. Out of the 37 hardcore countries you list there, 24 are in the Middle East, Muslim countries, where you just you can't even go in and say you're a Christian. If you do, you've got to be kept behind walls like the, the, uh, the GIs were when they went there. In fact, it's a crime to get saved. And they publicly uh, killed a guy in 92 for converting from Islam to Christianity. But at the end, when it says, what can I do right now as a believer besides praying for it, look for Saudis that come to this country, because they do, for schooling, for training. And while they're here, there's a golden opportunity to share Christ with them. Not just Saudis. Any, any of the difficult countries. Think about that. Think of the opportunities. Maybe you know somebody who's from a foreign land who's here for a while to study or for a profession. You can be a missionary right here. Just like Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Now you just don't go out and, and do an instantaneous thing. I remember we, uh, we tried working with a family from Iran and it took years just to get to the point where you could talk to them about the Lord Jesus. So you need to be ready to invest some time in building a bridge and so on. Okay, well, I'm going to skip uh, the summary of the book now. But if we went through it, you'd see the Lord Jesus over and over again using the least likely people, the most unpromising circumstances and the most unconventional means to build his church. But what I want to focus on there is the unlikely people. Because that's you and me. Think of the day one. Here's the day of Pentecost. You have all these people ready to hear the gospel and God's got to look around for a man to stand up and speak to him. As you, as you go through the roll call, the first person I'd think of would be John. And the last person I'd think of would be Peter. Wouldn't you? He's just denied even knowing the Lord with curses. You know, he's so unreliable. Up and down, up and down. That's why Jesus chose Peter, you see. So he had to get the glory. And that's the way it is right now. You say, I'm a nobody, you know. I can't talk. Well, that sounds like Moses. 
God can use you right now. Think about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you indeed fulfilled what you said you would do. You not only have built your church, but you're still doing it. We thank you that it's still an ongoing story, that there's still room for one more. So we do ask, Lord, from the bottom of our hearts that before that last believer is added to your church and you take it away for good, that we might cooperate with you, we might co-labor with you in that great, great work of building your church. Use us, we pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.